Thank you for tuning in to Morning Moments with Pastor Bruce Goddard from Faith Baptist Church. We pray that this is a blessing to you. Welcome to our podcast. And today, instead of our normal morning podcast, in fact, for a few days, um, I'm taking some messages that have been very special to me on the home and um, putting them into our podcast. Uh, our adult Sunday school lessons lately have been on the home, and our fall program is really on uh, faith and family and fellowship. And so um, today's message is from 2015 when we had a family conference. We had just an amazing time. We brought in um, Dr. Pete Cowling and his son, Kevin Cowling, Pastor Cowling, Pastor Kevin Cowling in um, Valley Baptist Church in Arizona. And uh, their their wives spoke some. But the next couple of days um, in our podcast, I'm having um, messages from this conference. And so these are messages spoken at our church by uh, Dr. Pete Cowling, an incredible, incredible man, and his wife, great, just they're amazing people. So maybe two of the God, most godly people I've ever known in my life. And then Kevin Cowling and his wife, what a great, a great pair having father and son speaking in these next couple of days. So uh, welcome to our podcast, and uh, let's hear the Cowlings as they speak. Thank you, Pastor Goddard. I'm honored to be here tonight. It's a great crowd. Monday night. Boy, I tell you, wonderful. You guys have been busy. We just got back from teen camp. Many of you did as well. And a lot of investment in our young people, our teenagers, every year. Thank you very much. And, of course, also investing in our ladies through your ladies' conference. You don't know uh, what a blessing you've been to me and to my family and to our church. Um, this, is, this is just wonderful for me tonight. My dad, of course, is uh, my number one mentor, has been my hero. I guess that's true in every child's heart. Uh, as they grow, God, God made it that way. Uh, the Bible says the glory of children are their fathers. And uh, children glory in their fathers naturally until the fathers may hurt them in some way. But uh, my dad's my hero, and I've looked to him. But your pastor is my hero also. And um, I, I've tried to pattern my home... And my marriage after my dad and my mom. But I've tried to pattern our church after this church. And I've tried to pattern as a pastor after your pastor. And uh, I tell you, I, I know this too. My, my mom and dad are real. As your pastor said, they're real. Um, you know, as parents, you're not going to get what you want. You'll get what you are. And if you want to have children with a heart for God, you better have a heart for God. My, my dad and mom are real. People have asked me before, they say, what are your mom and dad like at home? And I, I always told I told them the same answer all these years from the time I was a teenager, just like they are in public. That's the honest to goodness truth. They're the same. They're real. I say this too about your pastor. Your pastor's real. I think, I think you know that, but I, I know that. I, we stayed in a little bitty room in the Philippines together, and fortunately there were two beds, but I mean, we... we uh, we stayed in a little bit room uh, in the one time. It seemed like about 15 feet by 12 feet or something. And and uh, your pastor walks with God. Your pastor loves the Lord. 
and he has a prayer life, and I'm, I'm honored to be here tonight. Well, what I had done years ago is taught our folks on Wednesday nights my parents' book. And so if you want any of these notes, just buy the book, Rearing Kids with Character. And, uh, but I'll give you my perspective on some of those things tonight. But I, when I went to the Philippines uh, four or five years ago, whenever that was, with your pastor, I've been there twice uh, with him. He asked me to teach on, on what my parents did. And so this is what I'm teaching on tonight. And I'm looking forward to it tonight. I hope to honor my parents and I hope to honor the Lord. Proverbs chapter 22, verse number 6. If you have your Bibles, Proverbs 22, verse 6. We'll look at just uh, this verse here and maybe one other verse. And Proverbs 22, 6. God has blessed me in countless ways, but one of the greatest ways that God has blessed me is given me a godly home and godly parents. And I didn't choose them, but God has been so gracious to me. I have a goodly heritage. I could say with David, the lines have fallen unto me in pleasant places. And uh, I I tell you what I want to do. I want to pass that on to my children. I want my children to be able to have that same testimony that I have a goodly heritage. And God's word is true. And uh, here's a promise I think we ought to claim. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse number 6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. It's a great promise to claim, great promise to memorize. Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Our home was not perfect, but it was a happy home. It was one where God was honored and it was filled with wonderful, wonderful memories. And I want to say this, your home can be happy happy as well. And I don't know what your past is. I don't know what your home was like when you grew up. But I know this, if you'll follow God's recipe, if you'll take the ingredients that God gives us in the Word of God, you'll get the desired results. Amen? Uh, I, I remember Brother Howells used to tell the story about the guy that was praying. And he was praying. He'd say, oh, Lord. He said, boy, I hate baking soda. I hate baking soda. You probably heard your pastor maybe give this. Or, and, boy, I hate flour. I hate flour. Boy, Lord, I hate that salt. Ooh, I hate that salt. And he said, boy, Lord, I sure do love those biscuits, though. And, uh, you know, you put the right ingredients in, you'll like the end result. But you're not going to put, you don't have a better idea than God, neither do I. And if you don't follow God's plan, you're not going to get where God wants you to be. And uh, if your home's not what it ought to be, perhaps you've made some bad choices God's grace is sufficient, and God can restore love and happiness to your marriage, and God can make your home a little heaven on earth. He can. God can do it. There's hope if you'll follow the Word of God. Joshua chapter 1, verse number 8, the last verse I think we'll look at tonight. I may quote you a few others. Joshua chapter 1 and verse number 8. Here's the ingredients for good success, as God counts success. Joshua chapter 1 and verse number 8. Most of you, well, many of you know this verse already, maybe by heart. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that is written therein, for then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Now, you want to have good success in your marriage and in your home? Here's the answer. Read the Bible, meditate on what the Bible says, and then obey what the Bible says. It's really not that hard. But too many times our pride gets in the way or maybe we got somebody else has got our ear. And uh, we need to find God's plan and uh, let it soak in and then set out to obey it. And uh, you don't have a better plan, as I mentioned before. 
but anyway, let me, let me jump ahead some of this, and I'll jump right into this. I want to get my dad up here. I want to share some of the things uh, that my mom and dad did with us when I was growing up, and then some of these things, in fact, all these things I've tried to incorporate into our home. I've got a couple of my kids here tonight, in fact, three of, of the four, and uh, the fourth one is traveling with a college group at a Christian camp this week, but... Um, I tell you, it's a, it's a great life serving the Lord, and uh, I, there's no there's no life like it. God has been so good to us. I pastored at Valley Baptist Church in Mesa for 18 years, and God has blessed us abundantly. A lot of good people there, but uh, you don't have to choose between your ministry and your family either. Uh, you can. Uh, one of the things my parents did, and I'll get to this here in a few minutes, but they chose to get the family involved as we serve God in the ministry. And uh, they were killing two birds with one stone, I guess. But let me give you, I've got six or seven or eight things. I don't know how many things I'll give you uh, tonight that my parents did. Number one, my parents taught us to put God first, to put God first. And Matthew 6, 33 says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. That, that verse right there could be the text verse for our home. My parents were and are the most consistent Christians I know. And uh, they taught us from the Bible, but more importantly, they lived what they had learned from God's Word. They were the same on Monday afternoon at home as they were on Sunday at church. They consistently prayed. They read the Bible. Uh, We were in church every time the doors were open. And uh, my parents weren't the type that were arguing and fussing and fighting all the way to church. I've never, I've never heard my parents, and I, I'll tell you if I say anything that's not true tonight, I'll let you know. Uh, but uh, my, my parent, I never heard my parents criticize the church in any way, criticize or complain about having to go to church, complain about, boy, why does that preacher have this thing on Monday night at 6.30? I never heard my parents. Now, they may have complained about it in private. I don't know. They may have complained about it to God, but I'm telling you as their child, I never heard them complain. Now, I heard my dad complain about my mom not being on time sometimes, but... Uh, <laughs> I, I never, I never, I never heard my parents complain about the ministry at all or being in church. And I never heard them complain about having to give too much or go too much or anything like that. My parents lived the Christian life as well as taught us the Christian life and told us what to do. They taught me, my parents taught me to pray about everything. They taught me that we ought to go to God about everything and they lived it out. I, if you were to come to our home, we, we had prayer together every, every morning, 645 in the morning. And I wasn't always the, uh, the easiest one to get out of bed. I may be getting ahead of myself in my notes a little bit, but, uh, my, <laughs> my dad, uh, he would call me one time to get out of bed. And if I didn't get out of bed that one time, uh, we, this before we had smartphones, and I don't even know if I had an alarm clock in my room. But my dad would call me one time, and if I didn't get out of bed the first time, I'd get dumped with water. And uh, it, it started with a cup of water. And I don't know how this thing kind of got worse, but I guess it did, maybe because I deserved worse. Uh, but I remember one time my dad had a five-gallon bucket, and uh, that'll make you swim in your bed. And uh, all the way through the mattress. One time my dad took me when I was a boy. I didn't get up the first time he called me. And he took me and threw me out in the snow. And uh, with my blankets and everything like that. They were cruel parents. And uh, I tell you what happened though. I did, I did get to the point where I could hear the kitchen water faucet come on. I, I didn't. <laughs> I'd wake up that quick. 
I, uh, my, my, I didn't always hear my dad call me, or maybe I heard him, but I didn't get up. But I could hear that kitchen water faucet come on, and I was up. And uh, I didn't want to get that water again. But we, we'd have uh, uh, Bible time together uh, at 6.45 in the morning. My parents didn't just tell us to read the Bible. They read the Bible themselves. And we never came to the uh, Bible story time, we called it, from the time we were little growing up, where my dad hadn't already been reading his Bible there at the table. We read the Proverbs through sometimes. We read the Psalms through sometimes. Uh, we'd read uh, different stories, Bible stories sometimes through. And we usually go around in each person and read a verse, and then we'd pray together. My dad had asked uh, who has a prayer request for that day or anything we ought to pray about, especially that day, and we'd have prayer together but uh, my parents didn't just tell us to pray they taught put God first and seek his will and everything they showed me how to do it my dad um, one thing he did is we'd he'd pray about everything as we as we went through the day and as we went through life if I ever said to my dad uh, dad I'm, I'm concerned about this or I'm having this test today or dad I don't want to give this speech and I hate to get up in front of people and, and or dad I'm worried about this game or I hope my, uh, my you know whatever it may be I'd mention something my dad would always stop and pray right then and there and that's biblical by the way if you don't think that's biblical study the book of Nehemiah and uh, you know from the time Nehemiah the king came to Nehemiah the cupbearer and he said what's the matter Nehemiah first time he said you've not been you're sad you've never been sad in my presence before Before Nehemiah answered the king, the Bible says he prayed the God of heaven. Do you know Nehemiah, from the time the king answered, asked his question, to when Nehemiah answered, he prayed? And it wasn't an out loud prayer, I don't guess. But my dad had always put his hand on my shoulder and he said, let's pray. My dad called me soup and still does to this day. I told the teens at camp this week, um, my, my, he, my nickname was Super Kevin. And he shorted it, shortened it to soup. And that was good because it carried a long way. That soup, you know, across the field uh, when he'd be yelling for me at different games and uh, that that he'd come to. But we'd pray all the time. We'd pray before we'd go in the car anywhere of any distance. My dad would always stop and pray. And I know many of you may do this as well, but you ought to teach your children to pray about everything. And seek God first in everything. We can tell them that, but it's another thing to live that thing out. They always sought God's will. If it was what God wanted, that settled it. And again, it wasn't just something that they said or taught or learned. It was something that they lived. And I saw the way they lived it out. They made major decisions based on what was the will of God, not based on where the most money would come in or where the most security was or how far they could see down the road. But my parents made the decision based on what God wanted, and that settled it. And I don't know if my mom always agreed with my dad. Uh, probably she didn't, but she didn't voice it, and she always supported my dad. And uh, my dad, of course, would seek her advice on some things, but my, my dad would make decisions, and, and that's just what was going to happen. We were going to do it. We didn't have a, a democracy at our house. We had a dictatorship. And uh, my dad was, when my dad made a decision, and, of course, based on what God wanted and seeking the will of God. My dad taught at the University of Tennessee, as, as Brother Goddard mentioned a few minutes ago, for, I think, 11 years. He taught in the science department there. In fact, he was the head of the engineering department at UT, and that was, uh, and he can tell more about this. I can just tell you my perspective. It was his life's dream. We, we were active in a church uh, there in that area, a Southern Baptist church at the time. We didn't know a lot different in that, but uh, we had a house that my parents had built on 32 acres, and uh, we 
we just had everything that we thought we needed and wanted. My dad started sending college students to, to Hiles Anderson College and and uh, uh, I'm sorry, uh, to college students from University of Tennessee up to Hiles Anderson College, and, and they traced that back to him, and they said, Brother Hiles or somebody called my dad and said, why don't you come up here and teach? And my dad didn't want to do it. Um, he didn't want to leave East Tennessee and go to Hammond, Indiana. He didn't want to leave the house that he had built there, 32 acres, tenured professor at University of Tennessee. He took a 60% pay cut. I didn't know it back then, but I've heard him tell it before. But the bottom line was they prayed about it. We prayed about it. I remember praying about it as a family. And when we figured out it was God's will, or my dad figured out it was God's will, that was it. That settled it. And we didn't have to figure out anything else. We just knew that's what God wanted. And uh, I didn't want to leave. I remember uh, there in that home, I locked myself in my room. And uh, I didn't want to come out, didn't want to leave and go anywhere. But I saw my parents uh, put God first. You know, a lot of people say that, but my parents lived it. And honored the Lord and put him first in their life and their decision. My dad's never been back there. I've gone back there to that home. And uh, like for many of you, when you go back to the old home place, everything seems smaller. You know, when you're a kid, everything seems so big. And you go back there and everything's kind of compacted. And I've been back there and they built up some subdivisions around there. And some of that property's been sold off. But I think to this day, my dad's never been back there. My dad laid his Isaac on the altar and he's not going back. And he's not concerned about going back to see it. And maybe it hurt him if he did go back. I don't know. But I, I've seen my parents through the years put God first. And uh, they taught us to put God first in our life. Not just by what they said, but by how they lived. Then, number two, my parents taught me the value of hard work. My parents are still two of the hardest workers that I know. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 25 uh, says, The desire of the slothful uh, uh, killeth him. Uh, for uh, his hands refuse to labor. He coveteth greedily all the day long, but the righteous giveth and spareth not. How this needs to be taught today. I tell you what, our, our young people need to be taught how to work. And I know your, your pastor has taught you this before, but maybe you need to hear it from a different voice. Maybe you need to hear it from somebody else. But my parents taught us to work. We were growing up, uh, we always had chores to do around the house. And uh, one of my chores growing up was to get the garbage out every day and to take the garbage cans out to the street on the uh, whatever day of the week that it was. And uh, we were expected to do that chore. And we were reminded about a few times if we didn't get it done, there were consequences. And uh, my parents were creative in their consequences sometimes. Uh, one time I, my dad dumped the garbage can right in my bed. I don't know what it was about my bed. And, uh, but uh, we, uh, my, they expected us to work. In the summertime, my parents oftentimes were teaching at the college. They would teach summer classes, maybe not the whole summer. Of course, my dad uh, traveled for many years with a, with a recruiting group for the college in the summertime, and my mom would be there, and we'd switch off kids that way. But we were expected when we were younger to work two hours a day during the summertime when we weren't in school. And I, they had to work pretty hard just to come up with jobs to keep us busy and jobs for us to do. We didn't have a big farm or anything. We had a yard, I guess, about an acre or so. But, boy, there were a lot of jobs that we had to do. Depending on our age, we'd get the rocks out. We had a gravel driveway, and we'd have to get the rocks out of the grass. We'd have to pick up all the sticks. 
We'd have to weed the flower bed out in the front, of course, mow the yard. Uh, we had to clean out the dog pen. That was always a favorite. Uh, we had uh, a lot of different things we had to do. Sweep all the walks, vacuum the house, dust the furniture, uh, clean out the gutters when I got a little bit older, and uh, a lot of, lot of different jobs. But the truth is, if they taught us when we were growing up, if we didn't work, and they taught us the verse from the Bible, if a man doesn't work, neither should he eat. One time, uh, my parents gave us the job to, or gave me the job, not us, we each, they would leave a, a, a list on the kitchen t- counter, and uh, it'd be our, each of our names there, and this is what you were supposed to do. And occasionally, we had to work together. We had to learn to work together doing a job, but uh, we were expected to get those jobs done. One, one day, my job was to mow the backyard. And my parents came back home after teaching at whatever time they got home shortly after lunch. And, and I didn't have that job done. I think, I think it was later in the afternoon. I don't remember how it all went. But I know this. Uh, when I came to the table to eat that night, there were only five table settings. And there were six of us in the family. And I knew better than to argue with my mom and dad. And my mom had taught me that growing up. Listen, anything you whine for, if you ever whine for anything, you're not getting it for sure. If you, if you ask for something and you ask politely, you may get it, you may not. But if you ever whine about something, you're not getting it. And I, I tell you, my, my mom, she's, uh, I can remember many times my mom taking me by my little cheeks and she'd get down on my level and she'd look me in the eye and she'd say, son, you remember this? She'd say, son, I'm bigger than you and I got God on my side and you're not going to win. <laughs> you're not going to win. I, I remember one time... We were at the grocery store, and I can't remember who it was exactly, but um, we had, there was two or three of us there, and, and going through the grocery store, and somebody started whining or doing something, pitching a fit. My mom left the whole grocery cart full of groceries there in the store, marched us all out to the cart, drove all the way home about, I don't know, 10 minutes or 15 minutes, however long it took us to get home, went inside with the one of us that was whining, took care of that, came back out with a humble child, got in the car, drove all the way back to the store, finished her grocery shopping. You say, boy, that'd take a lot of time. I think in the long run it saved her a lot of time. Um, we, didn't, we didn't whine for things. And uh, we learned we learned not to argue. I didn't I didn't argue about about things. But when I came to the kitchen table and I saw there was five table settings, I knew I knew it was me that uh, wasn't going to eat. And uh, so I had to hurry up and get the lawn mowed before it got dark, and uh, so I could eat some. And I know I know some of you say, "Well, boy, that sounds cruel, you know, not feeding your own kids." Listen, look at me. All right, we we figured it out. Listen, they, I'm not, they weren't giving us unreasonable chores and things, things we couldn't do, but there were things that we just chose not to do, and if we didn't, eat, we didn't do it, we didn't eat. And uh, we, we were taught to work. And uh, again, I tell you another thing they did in teaching us to work, and, and really important, they worked with us and they made it enjoyable. The best way that I know, and I've tried to do that with this with my kids and only because I learned it from them, but the best way to teach your children to work is to work with them. Get job, Dads, when you're working around the house, you ought to have your children working with you. Anything that you're doing that's worth doing, you ought to be teaching to somebody else. And if it's not worth teaching to somebody else, you probably ought not be doing it. If, if it's worth doing, then teach somebody else. I've laid, we had a garage, but... My wonderful mother always had it full of everything, and so we never put a car in the garage. But I remember, I remember laying on that, 
that uh, asphalt out there many a time with that wind blowing through there in Chicago trying to, you know, change the oil. I, that was back before they had all these oil change places and stuff. And handing my dad the wrench and handing this or doing this or whatever. And uh, we were, the, the, they, they taught us to work by working together with us. When we were younger, my mom would, we had had uh, records. You remember the old record play? You know what those are? And uh, we'd get those old records and she'd put them on the basement. My dad would run wires up through the house. We had speakers different places in the house. And my mom, we'd play music through the house. And my mom would say, all right, it's time to clean. Beginning of the summer, we're going to clean the house. We're going to do your room, room this week. Isn't that great? Oh, that's great. And uh, so it was nice after it got done, especially when you had to live with my brother uh, in the same room. But uh, we'd, we'd go from room to room, and, and we worked together doing that. And we'd take down everything, wash everything, clean everything, clean all the scrub, everything. Sometimes we'd paint, do different things like that. But my, my mother taught us to work, and she made it as enjoyable. And she had set goals for us. She'd say, all right, if we get done by this time, we'll go to Dairy Queen. And we didn't go out to eat a lot, but my mom had set goals for us. And if you, if you do this, by this time, we'll, I'll take you down here and we'll go, get a, uh, go to Burger Chef or something like that. And uh, we'd have a special treat, but they work with us. I, um, when I was young, I, we had, of course, we lived in Tennessee at the time. We had 32 acres of woods. And, and we had a, down at the end of our, our road, well, you'd go back into town. Going back into town, there was a motorcycle dealer. And, and I'd drive past her all the time, you know, to and from the house. And I noticed, of course, those motorcycles. And I don't know, I don't remember where the original thought came from. It's my dad or me. But somehow, I had my eyes set on a minibike. And a little Honda 50. Some of you remember those? A little orange and white thing. Big old fat tires on it. And, and it was a used, they had a used Honda 50 back then. And and my dad uh, took me down there, and we looked at it, and that it was on sale for $125. My dad said, son, how'd you like to have that? And I said, boy, I'd be, you know, I'd need, I can just envision, you know, myself speeding through the woods and driving, being cool and everything. And uh, my dad, I said, that'd be great. My dad said, good, you can work for it. And we bought that mini bike, and my dad made a chart and put it up on the wall of the living room with 250 squares on there. And I worked for that mini bike 50 cents an hour, 250 hours. And I honestly, I'd ask my dad because he wouldn't let me ride it until I got it halfway paid off. And so I could, I wanted to have work. Dad, give me some work to do. I, I'd see that thing sitting out in the garage, and man, that's a shame to see that thing gathering dust out there. And, but I, I worked and I worked and I worked and, I, and we made a big deal when I paid the whole thing off, like burning the mortgage. Amen. And, and, uh, uh, able to, able to ride that, that mini bike, you know, debt free. And, uh, I tell you what, it taught me to value that. Amen. I kept that mini bike till I was about 23 years old. No, I didn't either. <laughs> but, uh, it is true. My, my brother always wanted to ride. It was my mini bike and my brother, I, you know, I'd make him beg me to ride it, you know, if he got a chance. And, and even when I got to be a little older, my knees would be dragging the ground. I still didn't want to give it up. I didn't want to sell it. Still was running. Didn't want to give it to my brother. I didn't give it to my brother nothing. He had to pay me for it. Amen. I worked for it. And, uh, but it taught me the value of work and uh, to work hard. Uh, some of the best memories that I have in my youth are working with my father. We built a shed together. 
um, just a, just a storage shed that we needed beside our garage. One of the garage served as one of the walls. I, I believe I'm not sure, but built that thing together. Learned to frame a few things, and I'm not a great framer, but. My dad made me feel important. He made me feel valuable. My dad made me feel like he needed me in doing that work. And I tell you, I was proud of it. And, uh, you know, it's, I, my mom and dad taught me to work, and they taught me the great feeling that comes from doing work. You know, there's fulfillment and satisfaction that comes from working. You're not going to get from playing video games all day. I, to this day, I've tried to work with my boys, and I, I may talk a little bit more about that tomorrow, but... We, we, we wax my car twice a year, and it's been good memories for us, at least for me. I don't know, maybe for them one day when they get older. And, uh, but oftentimes after we do that, I tell you what happens later that night, walking out to the garage, open that garage door, looking at that car again. You know, there's, there's satisfaction in a job well done. I remember going out there looking at that shed, and my dad said, look at this, son, and look what we did. And uh, we built that uh, shed together. We built a dog pen together and poured the concrete and, and put that fence up. Uh, we, uh, we built a canoe together and that valued that canoe. I, I remember putting that fiberglass on there, and I don't remember how we all did. I was just a little boy. Again, my dad made me feel important until somebody stole it from beside our house, and that made me mad. But uh, a lot, lot of times we spent together working. We had a science project when I was in junior high that was doing my, my dad, of course, that's right down his alley. And, and uh, we decided to do the project on lenses and mirrors and, and reflection and refraction and different things. And, and uh, we built a telescope. My dad, one night a week, we drove all the way to Chicago to the planetarium there in Chicago. And, and we ground me and him. He had one. I don't know what you did with yours. Probably sitting in a drawer somewhere. But um, we had to grind that mirror out. And they give you a convex mirror, and they put some, uh, some sand and some, uh, you learn a lot of things here tonight, and some water and put it in there between those glasses on a 50-gallon barrel. And they got a little clamp to hold that thing in there. And you go one, two, three, four, and you count to 50 on this. Then you go a quarter way around the barrel. Then you do the same thing again and keep going around. Then they put it in that little tube, and they shine the light on there so they get just the right focal point and, uh, that we needed for our telescope. Listen, my, my dad took me up there. I took a lot of time. My dad went up there with me. He made a he made a lens and or a mirror. I made a mirror. Had it had it silvered and that kind of thing. But some of the best memories I have, it, we, there are a lot of good memories we have playing together. But there's a lot of good memories we have working together. I remember working with my mom. This is how ignorant I was when I was a kid. When I got to be, um, I think it was thirteen, fourteen years old. They had an opportunity at First Baptist Church to for some of the kids to go and and do corn detasseling in a little bit south of where, where we live, down in Indiana. There's a lot of corn in Indiana, of course. And uh, it, there were some well-meaning people, and, and they took a lot of buses down there, and there was a lot of kids at our church and our school, but it was, it was really a mess. I'm talking about it was a mess, and it really became a joke. Now, as kids, we didn't care. We loved it. You know, organized chaos. Well, it wasn't even organized chaos. It was just chaos. You know, a lot of fights with corn stalks out in the field, you know, and we, we, again, we didn't care. We're getting paid and we're just playing around. Well, they, that kind of our, cut our season short and they told the fellow who was running it the first year, thanks but no thanks, you city folks can just stay up there and we'll find somebody down here to do the work. Well, my mother saw the opportunity that we had to work in the summer and to earn some money. Of course, my dad was gone a lot of the time traveling on tour and she went to those people that had hired them and said, let me bring some kids down. And they said, no, no, no. 
you're from up there in that, in that northwest Indian. No, you're city kids. You just stay up there. My mother said, no, you give me a chance. I wasn't involved in the thing last year, and my mom can be pretty persuasive. And uh, she said, uh, you give me a chance, and she said, we'll be the best crew you have. And they said, okay, we'll let you have one bus. Previous year, they had taken two or three. Now, I remember my mother going through the screening process, and it was a little bit embarrassing for me because uh, she had uh, screened out some of my friends, you know, and, and I've seen her terminate some of my friends. And, uh, but... My mom run that thing. She ran the tightest shi- tightest ship in that business. And my my mom, she'd sit in the back of the bus in the middle of the aisle on a cooler. I can see my mom. She puts that smile on her face and with her toothbrush all the time, brushing her teeth, sitting smiling, bouncing around on the cooler in the back of the bus. And my my mother, of course, she got incentive and reason she had that cooler. She had a bunch of soda in there. It's always generic soda. Praise the Lord, saving some money. And uh, but give out to the best crew that day. And and you didn't play around. Um, th- those kids learned what my mom and dad were like and what my home was like. Uh, you get you're playing around in the field, and my mother'd call you over and say, "Mister So and So, come over here." And she'd say, "Sign this paper right here. You're terminated. You can have a seat on the bus." And uh, she she would. Now she had a list. We only had one bus, and she had a list of other kids to fill their place the next day. <laughs> Turned out, the end of that that summer, they came out the, from the Supercross Seed Company. And uh, they gave us all special hats, and we got a plaque. We were the best crew they had that year, a bunch of city kids uh, from up there. But uh, funny thing was, we did, and my mom kept doing that and year after year. And th- then they asked her to do two buses, and then three buses. I think she kept it at three buses. That was the most that she could organize. But, boy, we'd get up early in the morning. I, I mean, we'd have to be at the school at 5.30 or some. I don't know, early, early hour. And we'd get to those fields and walk through that mud, you know, the heavy dew that's in Indiana. And, and you'd have to put on uh, plastic bags we started out with. Then we got a little sophisticated and we bought these raincoats and rain pants, you know, and we'd wear. But about the time the corn would dry, it'd be so hot. You'd be sweating through on the inside anyway. But it was, it was just, it wasn't hard work, but it's dirty work. My mother would be out there. She'd walk as much as anybody because she's walking behind the whole crew and checking the whole field. And, and do you know, even know what corn detasseling is? I should have explained this, I guess, from the beginning. But uh, when, they're, when, they're, when they're doing seed corn, growing seed corn, they have to cross-pollinate and create a hybrid-type corn. And so there would be four rows or six rows of what they call female corn, and then there would be two rows of male corn and uh, interspersed there in the field. You'll see it sometimes. You go back there and seed corn, decalb and supercross, different things like that. And uh, what they would do is you have to pull all the tassels off of the four rows or the six rows and, of course, leave the male rows and those tassels on so that pollen would cross-pollinate over on the, the little... I, boy, this is a great lesson you're getting here. Uh, little, little uh, what do they call those strands that come up from the, from the silks that come up from the, from the kernels. And then they'd, they, they expected you to get all of them out of there. Some of them high, some of them low. So you had to pop them things out and go through the field and pop them all out, every single one. Then they bring helicopters in a lot of times and beat that pollen around. And uh, it's a, they get a lot of money, you know, per, per bushel. But the uh, funny thing was, my mother did that. Uh, for all the years I was in high school, and we were, we were the best crew, so we get to come in early, and we'd work later than the other crews. And, and a lot of hours we'd put in. We'd, we'd work 10, 12 hours a day sometimes. And my mom out there with us, I always thought when I was growing up, boy, my mom must be poor, 
you know, boy, it must be tight, you know, because my mom's having to put in all the extra hours. And it was good money for me. When I was 13, 14 years old and we were making six, seven bucks an hour, that was, that was good money back then. And my mom was making, I thought, boy, she must be making a lot of money. And, uh, boys, I, you know, maybe she's trying to get some new jewelry or something. I don't know. I never figured it out. Funny thing was, my mom did that until my brother... Uh, my youngest, the youngest child in our family, when he got out of 12th grade and he got a job working construction with me at the college, she didn't do it anymore. I guess she didn't need money anymore. And uh, no, the reason she did all that is just for us. She did it for our family. Now, she helped a lot of other kids to earn some money in the summertime. But she did it so that we'd have the experience to work. And I've got a lot of good memories about all that, and I could tell you a lot more stories about corn detasseling, but you guys need to get smarter and figure out what it is. But uh, I, could, I could tell you other things. She'd, she'd get our advice on redecorating our rooms, and we'd uh, paint our rooms together. We'd go pick strawberries and, and different things like that. I'm so thankful that my parents taught me the value of hard work. And I, I tell you something, you teach your children to work hard, and you teach them to honor God, that they'll be a success. And uh, too many children, don't, uh, parents, and I know what we're thinking. Well, if I just do it for them. Listen, my mom taught us to make our beds in the morning. They expected, and, and again, as we were younger, as we grew older, she knew what, what our best was. But she expected us to do our best making our bed. And if we didn't make our bed in the morning and it got time to leave and our bed wasn't made, the next day we had to make everybody's bed. And, and so we learned. We learned to do that. And I, I, again, I can't do a lot of things. And I, I've got a lot of weaknesses. But I'll tell you one thing I can do. I can work. I, I can work. And uh, it started, of course, when I was young. I've got to hurry. Number three, my parents taught us to live for others. Not, not only to honor God first, taught us the value of hard work, but they taught us to live for others. They taught us that giving is better than receiving. Acts chapter 20 and verse 35. The Lord Jesus' words are recalled where he said it is more blessed to give than to receive. My dad talked a little bit this at our church last night, but we, um, my dad took a leave of absence from the University of Tennessee, and we moved to, to Illinois for about a year and a half. And the first time we were in a neighborhood, we, uh, we didn't have any, we had one neighbor. We were in Tennessee, but we really didn't have a lot of neighbors. We had a lot of property, and we were in a neighborhood for the first time, and, and a little bitty house that backed up to a cornfield uh, there in Illinois. And there was a boy that lived next door, I think next door, maybe two doors down, but his parents didn't have a lot of time for him. They would, they would basically feed him breakfast or give him something to eat, maybe, and then they'd push him outside the door and just lock the door, and he couldn't go back in until it got dark. And so he just basically wandered around the neighborhood looking for something to do. And uh, he, would, he, would take, I, he would take all of our toys, and it, and it was okay until he got my big wheel. And, and the problem was when he took my big wheel, he broke the seat. And when you break the seat, you know that thing goes down in there, those two little posts like that in there? If you don't have the seat to lean back on, you can't go very fast in a big wheel. And, boy, it made me mad. And uh, we'd, we'd have to go around the neighborhood and find all our toys because Wally, you know, he'd, he'd come get our toys and just take them and play with them, leave them somewhere, and we'd have to go find them. I, I, my dad mentioned last night, I asked my dad when I was a little boy, I was just about six years old then, I said, Daddy... I said, we were out collecting those toys. I said, Daddy, do you love Wally? My dad was honest with me. And he said, no, son. He said, but I'm going to. And we decided we were going to love him. My dad did. He decided that's really what started us uh, running a van in our neighborhood. And we had an old GMC rally wagon van. And my dad 
drew the, the flyers up. He'd hand draw. Of course, he's got that engineering background. And he'd draw. And, and he'd say, meet at our house at what time did you put down? 9.09 on Sunday morning. And you'd get a donut and Kool-Aid. And, and my mom would make those donuts, those old biscuit things. you whack them on the corner of the thing, and they pop open. You remember those biscuits like that? And she'd take a giant Tinker toy. You remember that? Stole one of our Tinker toys. And she'd take it and hit it down, you know, in the middle of that biscuit, throw it in that, that and she'd make those, those sugar donuts. I remember one time she burned a whole batch, threw them out in the backyard for the birds, and guess who ate them? Wally. And, uh, but... Uh, <laughs> That was the best day he had in a while, I guess. But my, uh, we, my older sister and I, we walked around the neighborhood with my dad, those mimeographed papers that my dad, I don't know where we ran them. I, don't, I was too young to know all that stuff. But we'd pass out those flyers and invite kids to come to church. And, and before long, we're filling up that van. We didn't know anything about a bus ministry or anything like that. And by the way, that's what God used. I think the first time we were in Independent Baptist Church because uh, it wasn't the uh, closest one to us, I think. And just down the road, but we started taking kids. And before long, we had to take two trips, you know, to and from church, dropping kids off just from our neighborhood. And uh, we, we found the joy of living for others and doing for others. That's really what the Christian life is. And uh, began to... Uh, work with the young people there and and we got back to Tennessee after that year and a half and and my mom and dad of course we had an uncle that was at First Baptist Church in Hammond under Brother Hiles and my dad's my dad's uncle it's my great uncle and and he ran a bus route over to East Chicago and Whiting Indiana those old blue buses they used to run at First Baptist and my dad was got some uh, influence from him and about running the buses and we in a Southern Baptist Church well you had to see it we my dad asked our pastor and uh, it was it was a fairly large church, I guess, Southern Baptist Church there in the town. My dad said, can we start running buses to pick up a lot of the kids and the other people around here that can't come to church? And our pastor said, yeah, I'll get you whatever buses you can fill up. Well, see, he didn't know what he was getting into because my dad, my dad taught engineering at the University of Tennessee, and he's winning all these engineering students to Christ. And, and they're very creative people. And they've got these, all these interesting ideas and things that they're going to do. And here's what I grew up with. I grew up on Friday nights. We would have, I, I guess, I, I'm not trying to, again to exaggerate this, but we'd have a dozen, we'd have up to 20, 25 uh, students from college, from University of Tennessee, come to our house. And we'd build a bond. My mom would cook for them and feed them all, and that was a good incentive to get those college students down there, a home-cooked meal. And my mom would feed them, and then we'd sit out by the bonfire, you know, we'd make. And we'd sing the Campus Crusade was going pretty strong back then. And we'd sing, it only takes a spark to get a fire going. Soon all those are... And we'd sing, uh, two men walking up a hill, one caught up and one left standing still. I wish we'd all been ready. There's no time to change your mind. The sun has come and you've been left behind. And... We'd, we'd sing songs like that. But I tell you what, the, the kids were singing from the heart, and they, they were zealous for the Lord. They were rough looking. A lot of them had come on, they'd come on their motorcycles, and my dad can tell you other stories that I can. I'm just telling you from my, from my growing up in that time, uh, six, seven, eight, nine years old, but uh, seeing those, those college students get excited about the Lord. And now we had an outlet. He had take them out Friday night. They'd, we'd go out and sing. And then Saturday morning, they'd go out and visit and uh, invite people to come to church and fill these buses up. And I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I, 
I know within just a short time, they were bringing hundreds of people to our church. In fact, our church was the fastest growing church, I think, in the state, fastest growing Southern Baptist church, and it was because of those buses. And boy, they're just bringing kids from all over. Well, again, I can tell you a lot of stories, but the old auditorium uh, our pastor gave us to use for a junior church, and it, it in this church, of course, they had TV cameras in the main auditorium, and it was on television, those things going up and down the aisle, the cameras and different things back then. And we're over in the old auditorium, and the pastor, I think he really liked it. I think he enjoyed the fact that it was outreach and all that. The deacons didn't like it so much uh, in that church. And maybe part of the reason was one time uh, in junior church, and it was exciting, the, the kids, the, the college students got a chimpanzee that could smoke cigarettes and drink Coca-Cola. And I'm telling you, they were creative. It was exciting. So they taught that day on evolution versus creation, you know. Here's the evolutionist, you know, this monkey over here on this side. And between Sunday school and church, somebody got that monkey a cigarette, put him out on the front porch with the other deacon, you know, smoking. <laughs> but I, a lot of, a lot of the, they, they built a little sound booth. It was kind of like a little phone booth uh, for that junior church. And uh, they, they put holes in the bottom of it, and then they put a big gauge on the front of it and some lights they had that would light up. And the, again, these are engineering students from UT. And somebody would be in there and turn that dial from the inside, and as the kids would sing louder and louder, that dial would get higher and higher. And once it would reach a certain spot and get over in the red, it would start shaking. And then they'd put all these smoke bombs out, these holes in the bottom, you know, like they blew up this machine. And that was pretty good till one time it got so smoky in there we couldn't hardly see. And then the smoke started filtering down the hallway to the main auditorium where they're filming with the TVs and everything. And uh, I think my dad preached on Sodom and Gomorrah that day. And... A lot of exciting times. We, the prodigal son. They tell the story of the prodigal son. One of the guys have a motorcycle. I remember he rode that motorcycle right into the old auditorium. And he's the rebellious son running off. He did a wheelie right down the aisle and out the back. And they, they preached on Lazarus being raised from the dead. They went and got a casket from the funeral home and brought it up here and had somebody inside of it. And I all kinds of things. I grew up, you say, preacher, what did you think about it? I thought it was cool, man. That was exciting. It's the greatest thing in the, the world. And we were trying to reach others. And we were serving others. And uh, some of the things, of course, we, we didn't know a lot, uh, maybe that we know today, but we knew enough that, that people need to hear the gospel and get saved. And uh, we, were, we were doing all we can. And, and boy, it was just, it, it was an exciting time. My, my mother, we, uh, we soon moved up to First Baptist Church and course we kept running the bus ministry my dad's run a bus all these years i um somebody asked i think my dad I thought he said ask me but i don't remember where this came from so i'll be honest with you but he says somebody asked me how long is your dad going to run a bus to church i said until they build a 72 passenger car i guess i i don't know but he's he's got a burden and it's real to him and he still runs a bus every single week of the world and several buses i don't know how many buses he runs there at first baptist but i i remember my little mom um, we, we had some, some kids move off my dad's bus route in Crown Point, and that's a tough area to go. I'd go visit with my dad, and he'd always look forward to Burger Chef afterwards. He'd take me out to eat, and he'd visit as long as what he thought we could stand. And uh, maybe an hour and a half, two hours, I don't know what all we'd do, but we'd go visit some folks. And then uh, we had some kids move off that bus to another area, and there wasn't a bus route in that area. And so my mom started picking them up in the van. 
and taking them to church. Well, before long, we had too many of their friends and different ones that filled the van up, so we had to get another bus. And my mother told us, uh, told me, she said, well, son, she said, you need to come help with me on the bus, and you're the man of the bus. I'd say, well, you're the mom of the bus. And, uh, but she'd say, you have, to, you have to tell the Bible story on the bus, and I didn't want to. I was shy. But uh, that's kind of where I learned to get up in front of people. I didn't learn very good, I don't guess. But I'd tell a Bible story, try to apply it to the kids, and try to be a helper to my mom on the bus. But I've seen my, my dear little mother. I, we used to pick up a girl named Karen, and some of you may have seen my mother with Karen if you've been to college. And Karen, I think, was born with no legs. Is that right? And uh, was, were, they, were they amputated at some point in, in, when she was young? But uh, I, I've seen my mom. Uh, take Karen so many times from her house, just a poor house and a poor area, and and uh, she'd roll her uh, carrier down the steps. She'd have she'd been down, and Karen had grabbed my mom around her neck, and she'd help Karen down the steps of her house and put her in the wheelchair, roll over to the bus door, and then my mom would bend over again. And because of the situation, you know, my mom was the one to do that. But Karen had grabbed my mother around the neck, and my mom would pick her up the steps, put her on the front seat of the bus, and I've seen Karen. Just her face beam, and she—I guess she's the best singer on our bus. She loved coming to church. She loved spending time with my mother. My mother, of course, at the college, you're only allowed to come visit so many times a year. I think maybe once a semester is all you can come visit without paying and registering in that. But Karen would come once a semester to the college. My mother'd go pick her up and bring her to the college. I guess she felt like she was in heaven there at the college, and getting to be a register. This a little black girl. And uh, amputee. And uh, boy, I tell you, I, I saw the joy that came just from serving others and what you could do for others. I saw it. I, I, again, I'm not just talking about it as an adult, even as a teenager, as a child, I saw that. I, I could tell you other stories. We, had a, uh, we used to have a children's church in the rescue mission that we would use that, that building, uh, their chapel, and the rescue mission. And there was a man there always in the kitchen cooking named Ben. And uh, Ben was the cook in the rescue mission. And Ben had, I, I don't know if his wife had left him or she had died, but we don't know the whole story, but he didn't have any family. And I, I remember uh, Ben coming over to our house every time there was a holiday. and We'd have a special holiday for Ben. We'd have Thanksgiving dinner. He'd come over our house. We'd always invite him. He'd always be so apologetic. Oh, you don't want me to come over there. But I tell you what they taught me. Hey, living for others is where it's at. And serving others. We had a little boy. I... On, on dad's bus route uh, lived in a trailer and it was just a, a horrible place and, and dirty and, and all you remember Mike Adamski and we got Mike to come to church and his family and again my dad could tell you the more of the details but I know we helped Mike get into school and into our school into Christian school and Mike didn't have a lot of clothes to wear and of course they had a dress code at our school at Hammond Baptist and Mike's pants were too short and I, I remember he didn't have a jacket, a warm jacket. You gave him an old Atlanta Falcons jacket, big old jacket, way too big for him. I remember Mike was, he wasn't in my grade, I don't think, but he was in elementary school when I was in elementary school. And I, I saw Mike come to school, and I saw the kids laugh at him. I mean, as a child, boy, something began to burn on the inside of me, and I, I had to stand up for Mike. And I, I didn't want to do that. I was kind of shy naturally, but I... I told some of the other kids at school, you don't know where he came from. Y'all go see that boy's house. Y'all to see where he lives. See what he has to, to put up with and where he came from. Oh, listen, I, my parents taught me that living for others and, 
And unselfishness is the key to happiness, really. Living for others. You want to be happy, invest in somebody else. A lot, a lot of folks say, well, boy, I just got to have more things. Your things never made anybody happy. You, you want to find real happiness and fulfillment, start living for I got to hurry. Number four, they taught me that marriage is for life. I may have to continue this tomorrow, and I'll sit her down here in a minute. They had their disagreements, but divorce was never an option. It was never mentioned. They were willing to play their roles, and they were willing to adapt to each other, and I saw it. I saw it. Um, (laughs) My dad, um, anytime, my mother, maybe it's just typical ladies, she teaches home decorating at the college. I guess she still, I don't know if she still does, but she did for years, and she's written a book, and you can get that somewhere. I don't know if you got it here. But my mother's always wanting to paint something or redecorate something or recover something or re... My dad is practical mind. Amen. Some of you fellows agree with me. I, you know, I get comfortable with something. Now I got married to something similar. And uh, my, my mom would say, Pete, I, I'm thinking about hanging this picture over here on this wall. And I can still hear my dad saying, Frina, that'll, that'll hurt the, what is the structural integrity of the wall. <laughs> but somehow that picture always got hung. I don't know. <laughs> But my, my mom and dad were different. Listen, we, I, I've seen them. My dad is always early. My dad taught us growing up, son, if you're not 10 minutes early, you're late. I mean, we were early. I mean, early, early. Every time at church, we were early. Uh, I felt like we were there with the, with the janitor, turn on the lights. I mean, we were always there early. My mother, on the other hand, she always can get one or two or three or four or five or seven or ten more things done before she leaves the house. And I've seen him try to work that out through the years. Um, but but I, I have seen this. I've seen them be willing to apologize to one another. I've seen them apologize to me. to my, And I'm not talking about every day. But I'm talking about they're real. But they realize this thing of marriage is not just till it gets difficult or till there's a disagreement, but it's for life. We're going to work this thing out. I've heard my dad say that before. Listen, we're, we're a family. We're figuring this thing out. We're going to make this thing right. And uh, they, they taught me that uh, uh, we're, we're, uh, they, their marriage was, was going to last. I... I've never seen my dad more angry at me than when I talked back to my mother. When I got to be in junior high and I, I thought I knew everything. You guys should have had me come speak when I was in junior high because I knew everything back then. <laughs> but I, I, <laughs> I talked back to my mom several times and shame, shamefully so. Um, and my mom would say, you, when your father gets home, you'll answer to him. I've never seen my dad more angry. I talk back to my mom. I've seen my dad put his finger on my nose and say, son, that's my wife. I wouldn't allow any man to talk to my wife that way. You know, I talk to her that way. That's the best Christian I know. One time I talked back to my dad or my mom and my dad came home and I was expecting, I, was, I knew I was going to get it. But I didn't know I was going to get it exactly what. My dad went out to the garage and got a suitcase and he came to my closet and he said, son, pick out what you want to take with you. And I said, what? You know, I'm junior high. I'm cool, you know. I take my punishment and go on. He said, pick out whatever you want to take. 
I said, Dad, where am I going? He said, I don't know where you're going because you're not staying here. He took, and I didn't, I didn't do anything. I didn't pick out anything. So he started taking clothes out of my closet and putting that suitcase. Then he closed that suitcase and set it outside the door. And he put his hand on my shoulder, walked me over to the door, put me outside the door. And he said, son, he said, you can come see us at Christmas time. He shut the door. <laughs> I, was, I was so stubborn. I, I took that suitcase and I walked the other side of the yard and sat down in the apple tree. And I sat over there for I don't know how long it was. It seemed like forever. And I'm thinking, where am I going to go? I have a cell phone. I don't have anybody to go to. <laughs> Finally, after an hour or so, I came back to the house and I rang the doorbell. <laughs> My dad came to the door and he said, yes. I said, Dad, I don't have anywhere else to go. I don't know what to do, where to go. I said, well, son, he said, if you're going to stay here, you're going to learn to listen. You're going to respect your mom. He said, when you... When you decide you can make your own rules, you're an adult. Then you'll pay your own way then. You get your own place. Until then, you're going to obey. And a humble boy came back in with his suitcase into the house. But I saw, I saw my dad uh, defend my mother. I saw my mother always supportive. My, my mother would listen to no criticism of my father. None. We... If, if I ever asked my dad to do something and he said no, and then I went to my mom and asked her the same thing, and my dad found out about it, I was getting it. He didn't play one against the other. And my mom and dad taught me that, that marriage is for life. Parents, we must determine to give our children a good picture of marriage like, um, like God intended for us to have. Marriage until death do us part. Your children may be aware of difficult times, but they ought to see you come together and work it out. You, you ought to keep your vows and provide the stability that your children need.